Turn the scriptures to Daniel chapter 2 today. Daniel chapter 2, we're going to be picking up in verse 24. Daniel 2, verse 24. Daniel 2:24. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets. And makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into my, in thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter. And he that reveals secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away. No place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And whosoever the children of men dwell, wherever they dwell, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thy hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of the potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided." But there shall be in it of the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to the people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, and he worshipped Daniel, and he commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing that thou couldst reveal this secret. And the king made Daniel a great man, gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel set and the gate of the king. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray again and ask the Lord's blessing on the sermon. Father, we come before you again and ask that you give us wisdom as we seek to study your word this morning, this uh, powerful show of your might by revealing to the king his dream. I pray that you would help us understand it, apply it, and benefit from it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, or the first half of this chapter, if you recall, we primarily focused on the overcoming of demonic forces by the might and power of God. That all of these magicians and consulters of demons were put to shame by Daniel's ability through the power of the Spirit to reveal to the king this mystery of his heart. And we looked back throughout some Old Testament stories of how God always puts to open shame these magicians and demonic forces. There is real power in the principalities and dominions of darkness. They do have real might, but they, that might uh, is subordinate to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And without fail, the Lord always puts to open shame the powers of darkness anytime there is a clash of power. Throughout history, this theme runs from Babel all the way forward to this very day, the Lord disperses, dispels, and brings to open shame the powers of darkness and the demonic foes. The earth may rage against the sun, but the Lord scoffs. Here in the latter half of Daniel 2, Daniel, through the power of God's Holy Spirit, reveals to the king his dream, but not only what he dreamed, because the king was asking, he said, what did I dream? That was his question to his soothsayers and magicians. He said, what did I dream? Tell me what I dreamed. He wouldn't even tell them what he had dreamed. And they couldn't even do that. And Daniel not only told him what he dreamed, but he told him that it was actually a prophetic dream that the Lord had revealed to him things that would occur in the latter days hereafter. But Daniel made it abundantly clear that it was not his own wit, Daniel's own wit and wisdom, 
that revealed these things to him. You see, what was very common throughout what, what Nebuchadnezzar would have been used to was these soothsayers and people that were familiar with demonic spirits, they would often lord this power over those around them. You can read tales throughout medieval history even, all the way up in, in the past uh, 2,000 years where there were demonic forces at work in magicians in medieval times, and, and cities would fear these men because they could do miracles and bring destruction upon people. And so oftentimes, as is the custom with arrogant arrogance and pride, which demonic foes are very much involved in, the soothsayers and the magicians would use this power, very limited power, to lord over their fellow men and cause them to fear themselves and they would cause wickedness to abound through it. Daniel, however, he had the opportunity here and he did end up gaining great power, but it was not because he asked for it. Daniel said, look, I, I'm going to reveal this to you, but it's not because I am wise or I have some sort of power that other men don't have. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he dwells in the light and the darkness is not hidden from him. And he has chosen through me to reveal this to you. And so Daniel immediately gave all glory and power to God and made himself humble before the Lord. Of course, the king, being the pagan that he was, immediately worshipped Daniel, it says, at the end of the revelation. He couldn't quite get rid of his old pagan ideologies, but Nebuchadnezzar did recognize, he said, truly your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, but he worshipped Daniel and promoted him to be head of the, the kingdom. But Daniel did not take this opportunity to uh, <clears throat> revel as others did. Another story that might ring a bell uh, of men lording this power over others was Balaam. Do you remember in the Old Testament the story of Balaam? It was the time that the donkey spoke to him and the Lord opens the donkey's mouth. But if you recall right before that, what was actually happening? Like where was Balaam going? Well, at the time, Balak, the king of Moab, was seeing Israel coming into his land and he was terrified. He said, Israel is like consuming the nations that they come into. And they were. They were pillaging, killing, plundering, burning by command of the Lord. And the king of Moab, Balak, he was, he was afraid of this. And he was like, I've got to do something about this. So he sent to Balaam, a man that was known to have power to curse people. And you may say, okay, well, this dude was just superstitious. Balaam was probably just some sort of, you know, sleight of hand guy that... No, no, no. Because what happened when Balak sent to Balaam and said, come curse this people so that I can prevail over them, the Lord appeared to Balaam and said, Balaam, you will not curse these people for I have blessed them. So there was real power in Balaam's curse. The king was no fool. The king of Moab had seen Balaam do work before, most likely, and knew that real darkness came upon people who Balaam cursed, and the Lord was not going to have it. And then he told Balaam, you will not curse them because I have blessed them. And Balaam decided to go anyways, and that's when the donkey started mashing his leg into the wall and going off the path because the Lord had sent an angel to slay Balaam for his disobedience. And no matter how many times Balaam attempted 
to, the story's really funny, but no matter how many times Balaam attempted to curse the people, he would go before the Lord and say, all right, I'm going to curse them. Lord, give me the words to say. And the Lord would say, no, you pronounce a blessing over them. And Balaam would bless them. The king would become angry. He'd take them to another high place. They'd build altars and do it all over again. And every time Balaam had to bless Israel because the Lord would not allow him to curse them. But the powers of blessings and curses and supernatural uh, abilities has existed throughout time. And Daniel here is exhibiting great power from the Lord. But unlike the pagans of the, the olden times, Daniel gave, gives all glory and honor to God. So Daniel says in verse 28, he says, There's a God in heaven that reveals secrets and he makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Now, this phrase, latter days, oftentimes we read that and we think, well, it's probably still in our latter days, like sometime in the future. Well, sometimes that's the case with certain Bible prophecy. But in this case, it was actually just in the near future for what Nebuchadnezzar was going to see and what kingdoms would rise after him. Hebrews 1 uses the same kind of language. In Hebrews 1, it says that God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers and the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So here the writer of Hebrews casts a reminder back to the prophets like Daniel, who was looking forward to the latter days. And in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, in these latter days... The Son has appeared to speak to us directly. And so those latter days were actually referencing a time when the status quo would change in Israel. There had been a way that God had worked with the nation of Israel up into the time of Christ, where they were his blessed and holy people, that they were his church, his visible church in the world. And when Christ came... We read in Romans that he has cut Israel off for a time. It says that, that there is one vine and that they've been cut off. And what's been grafted in has been a Gentile people. And it says that God has changed his visible church to be of all nations, peoples and tongues. All those like us here today who worship the Lord in spirit and truth. And there is inclination in the New Testament that one day Israel will believe again. And I do believe that. Paul says that in Romans. But the status quo was changing. The latter days of what Israel had known to be the norm was no longer going to be the norm when Christ came. So it was a latter days, an apocalyptic time for Israel when Christ came and God brought judgment upon them, destroyed them and dispersed them amongst the world. And his gospel went out. To the Gentiles. <clears throat> and that God established a kingdom, as we read here in Daniel 2. That God was going to establish a kingdom that would have no end and no lack of increase. Hebrews 1 continues to discuss that very thing. Saying, but under the sun, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So in these latter days, the writer of Hebrews tells us that God has spoken through his son and established an eternal throne 
an eternal kingdom. This is what Daniel was looking forward to in this dream of Nebuchadnezzar, this stone that was cut out of the mountain that became a great mountain itself, crushed the kingdoms of the world and grows into a great and mighty kingdom. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that he is reigning and must reign till he makes all of his enemies his footstool. Or in Ephesians 1, where Paul says that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, these latter days, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. And what is this, the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And he hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all and in all. So we can see this prophecy that was given to Nebuchadnezzar, who had no idea the implications of it being described to us here in these New Testament passages. The latter days speak to the beginning of the expanding and global kingdom of God. It was the latter days of Israel, the judgment of God upon them, the cutting off from the vine, the expanding of the gospel into the Gentiles, and a kingdom that would be global and expand its power over all demonic and earthly humanistic sin-centered dominions. This is confirmed by the very nature of this prophetic dream as well. So we're going to look at this dream here piece by piece. In verse 32 it says, the image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part clay. The first kingdom here is this head of gold. It was majestic, powerful. Uh, it was more powerful than the rest. And this was, we're told by Daniel, he says, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, thou art this head of gold. Now, what's interesting here is that it's not separate images, right? These are separate kingdoms that are being described here, but it's all in one image that makes up this man in the vision. Now, that's very, very important because what it symbolizes and what it shows us is that it is a succinct idea. Regardless of the fact that these kingdoms warred with each other and overthrew one another, they were all made of one idea and formed one image. And it was a humanistic, godless ideology. Whether it was Babylon, Greece, Rome, doesn't matter what kingdom came next. They all were spiritual inheritors of the kingdom that came before. They all worshipped these demonic forces and pagan ideas. Then they uplifted man as the center to be worshipped above God. Whether it was Nebuchadnezzar who set up an image to be worshipped, or the Caesars who claimed to be divine deity and put their face upon the coin and you had to worship. You could worship any god you wanted as long as you also worshipped Caesar. They were spiritual successors to one another. 
They were not unique ideas. Therefore, it's this one image that's formed. Babylon, of course, being the head of gold. Why? Because Babel, back in Nimrod's day, was the father or mother of all mystery religions. It was the place where all these pagan ideas right after the flood were born and went forward into the world. From the Tower of Babel, when all of these pagan concepts of ascending into heaven, smiting God for what he had done in the flood, and the Lord dispersed them, and with that dispersion went forth this pagan idea with all of those people, with their unique languages now, and all of these kingdoms that rose up after Babylon were just spiritual successors of their forefather in Babel. And this would have continued indefinitely had Christ not come. That stone cut out of the mountain without hands, smashing this image, grinding to powder these kings of the earth. So this head of gold is Babylon. It says, after thee, verse 39, after thee shall arise a kingdom inferior to thee. Of course, we know this was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Sirius the Persian and Darius the Mede. The Medes and the Persians, if you recall, which we'll read later in the book of Daniel with the handwriting on the wall when, I believe it was Nebuchadnezzar's son, was uh, partying with the temple relics and the hand came upon the wall and wrote that he had been weighed in the balance and found wanting and his kingdom was given to the Medes and to the Persians. It was Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, an alliance between the two which represented the breast and the two arms meeting together to form a kingdom. And it was not as mighty as the Babylonian Empire. It was a lesser empire. It's reckoned that that monarchy lasted 130 years. It was conquered. It was the conquering kingdom over Babylon. In verse 39, it says, And another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. The belly and thighs of brass signified the monarchy of the Grecians, founded by Alexander, who conquered Darius, the last of the Persian emperors. The third kingdom of brass, inferior in wealth and extent of dominion to the Persian monarchy, but Alexander the, himself, it says it dominated the world, and he did. There's an old... A quote attributed to Alexander or a story about Alexander that he had conquered so much of the world that at one point he actually wept because he did not know what he could conquer next. The fourth kingdom, it says in verse 40, shall be as strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken." Whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Now, what kingdom succeeded the Greek Empire was the Roman Empire. 
It was mighty and it covered the earth. Towards its end, however, it was greatly divided. And it speaks here of the clay and the iron mixed together. It specifically mentions the feet and the toes being mingled together of iron and clay. And what's interesting is, of course, you have ten toes. And at the very end of the Roman Empire, it was actually divided into ten kingdoms. Um, but even before that, Rome had become greatly, at the beginning, it was very centralized. But towards the end, it started breaking down greatly. And there were great endeavors made to unify Rome. There was a lot of intermarrying with various sects in Rome to try to unite through uh, marriage. And it speaks here of the seed mingling together but not causing strength. And so it spoke greatly of Rome. It says uh, that the iron and the clay shall not cleave one to another. The empire divided the government for a long time between the senate, the people, the nobles, and the commons. They were not coalesced. There were civil wars uh, between Marius and Sylla, Caesar and Pompey. Uh, it was iron and clay that did not mingle together, but Rome was nonetheless mighty, and it speaks of that great strength that was Rome. And of course, Rome was a very mighty empire that was greatly divided um, in its day, especially as it began to decline. This is the last earthly kingdom mentioned in the dream. This was the feet of iron and clay. And what did Daniel say in verse 44? He said, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Who was born during the Roman Empire? The Lord Jesus Christ was born. The angels appeared to the shepherds and told them that a child had been born, a great king, peace on earth, goodwill to men. The prophecies in the Old Testament tell us that he would be born, that the government would be upon his shoulders, that he would be the king of kings, the Lord of lords, that the increase of his government and peace would have no end. And here, as Daniel prophesied in the days of these Roman kings, as the kingdom was in decline, God set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, verse 44, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation sure. There was no room here for man's uh, intervening in this plan that God had put into place. God had already ordained all of these things, every kingdom that would rise up and destroy the next, and he ordained that Christ would come at that time during that last Roman Empire, the feet of iron and clay, and a kingdom, a stone, would be carved out without hands that would grind to powder the kingdoms of the world. And it would grind to power, powder the implications of what that image represents, that pagan ideology, the law against the law of God. It would grind to dust those things and it would establish a godly empire, a godly kingdom that would have no end. It's the stone cut out without hands representing that kingdom of Jesus Christ which should be set up in the world in the time of the Roman Empire, and upon the ruins of Satan's kingdom, 
This is the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, for it should be neither raised nor supported by human power or policy. No visible hand should act in the setting of it up, but it should be done invisibly. The spirit of the Lord of hosts. This was the stone which the builders rejected and became the head of the corner. The gospel church is a kingdom. The New Testament church is the kingdom of God. And Christ is the sole and sovereign monarch of it, in which he rules by his word and spirit. He gives protection and law, and from which he receives, receives homage and tribute. It is a kingdom not of this world, yet it is set up among the kingdoms of men. The God of heaven was set, setting up this kingdom to give authority to Christ to execute judgment, to set him as a king upon the holy hill of Zion, as we read in Psalm 2. That as the kings rage against him, the Lord scoffs and said, I've established my king upon Zion. Kiss the sun, lest you perish in the way. It was set up in the days of these kings, the kings of the fourth monarchy, of which particular notice is taken in Luke 2, that Christ was born when by the decree of the Roman emperor, all the world was taxed, reminding us that Rome was a global empire. And when these kings are contesting with each other and all the struggles, each contending, hoping that they become successful over one another, God will do his own work and he will fulfill his own counsels. These kings are enemies of Christ's kingdom. And yet Christ's kingdom is set up in defiance to them. It is a kingdom that knows no decay. Its increase has no end. It also does not know stagnation. Christ's kingdom grows. It will never be destroyed by any foreign force invading it, as many other kingdoms are. Fire and sword cannot waste it. The combined powers of the earth and hell cannot deprive it. The subjects of this kingdom are princes and priests established by the Lord of hosts. Nor will the kingdom be left to other people as the kingdoms of earth are. Christ is a monarch that has no successor. He himself shall reign forever and ever. His kingdom is a monarchy that has no revolutions. The kingdom of God was indeed taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. But still it was Christianity that ruled. The kingdom of the Messiah, the Christian church is still the same. It is fixed upon the rock. Remember what Christ said? He said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I always want you to remember, gates do not move. Gates are defensive structures. When Christ said the gates of hell will not prevail, it means that that church is growing in might and power and it is on a march of domination. And that when we reach those gates of hell, they will be holding fast as hard as they can to keep out the increase of Christ's kingdom, and it will fail, and those gates will crumble. All the kingdoms that appear against the kingdom of Christ are broken up with his rod of iron as a potter's vessel, Psalms 2. And then the kingdoms that submit to the kingdom of Christ, they will be established. God promises to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. The day is coming when Jesus Christ will have put down all rule, principalities, and powers and made all of his enemies his footstool. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 
that he's ruling and reigning till all of his enemies be made his footstool. And it says the last enemy he defeats is death. Upon his return. When speaking of himself, Jesus tells us in Matthew 21, on whomsoever this stone shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Jesus is that stone. It's an everlasting kingdom. <clears throat> the Lord will reign forever. And at no time in history will Christ revoke his throne. <clears throat> so in conclusion today, I want to give you three points. Summary and some application to our Christian walk today. First point, just as Daniel, <coughs> excuse me, throat's getting tickly. <coughs> just as Daniel gave all glory to God <coughs> for revelation, <laughs> I gotta drink more water, hang on. <coughs> the allergies are out for me today. Just as Daniel gave all glory to God for the revelation of the mystery of the dream, and reminded the king that it was not by his own cunning that he came up with this information, but that it was only all glory to God. So too, we as Christians must not be lifted up in pride. Right? We understand these mysteries. We know that we serve a king who's great and mighty, that he's grinding to powder the kingdoms of the earth. We can become arrogant because of that. Right? We, can be, we can go out here into the world and see the stupid stuff the world does. And we're like, man, these guys don't have a clue what they're doing and it's easy to be puffed up be like look i would never do that right but we're told not to have that attitude but rather be but for the grace of god i would be doing that exact same thing because i am a totally depraved human being and my heart is desperately wicked and without god revealing light into my heart i'd be lost I'd be the chiefest of sinners, as Paul says. He says, I am the chiefest of sinners. So like Daniel, whatever wisdom you have, give glory to God for it. Secondly, God's purposes are sure. Daniel was very confident when he said, the dream that you've had, the meaning of it is certain. There is no deviation from this. Daniel wasn't like, well, you know, men are men and things might happen. And this is kind of what God has in mind. But, you know, things go sideways sometimes. No, God's purposes are sure. This vision of empires rising and falling kings, their natures, the realities, how strong their empires would be and what order they would rise and fall. The disruption within those empires. There was no room for human agency to thwart this plan. Daniel said, as much as thou sawest this, the stone cut out of the mountain, breaking into pieces, know that what the king saw shall come to pass, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation sure. So as Christians, we can rest in the fact, knowing that just like this, in times past, we can see thousands of years of history here, certain planned, ordained, and executed according to God's plan. And his plan doesn't stop there. Is the mountain that's filling the earth will fill the earth. And we can have confidence in that. We don't have to fear or be dismayed at the wickedness that we see in the world because God's plans are sure. 
And third, not only can we be certain that God will accomplish his will and purposes, but he tells us what his wills and purposes are. The New Testament tells us and the Old Testament, but the New Testament writers tell us that the gospel is going to increase, that he protects his people, that no one can snatch us out of his hand. We do not have to fear principalities and powers and demons and darkness. We just have to be bold, bold as lions, and have confidence in that. Therefore, when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we can pray that in confidence, knowing that God is manifesting and growing his kingdom and influence in this world and time and history. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing your